0: Lord, we open your word today and we open our hearts today and we ask, Lord, that you, by your word, even you, Jesus Christ, the living word, would meet us today. Some of us may feel desperate for you and some of us may feel afraid of you and some of us may doubt that you're even there or that if you are, you even care. But Lord, what you have said is, you are real, you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you, and you are ready to speak to those who are ready to hear. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, make us ready to hear you today. Not just to hear words, but to receive life, to believe by faith, and to apply with everything that we have within us so that we would follow you with everything that you've made us to be. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Some stories have a way of coming around and around and around again. Have you ever noticed that in your own life? Are there stories that in your family get told again and again and again? They are the stories of, I don't know, how your parents met, or maybe how they migrated to this country, or maybe how you did. Or maybe it's the story of how uh, a particular episode occurred that has always been a point of humor, or a point of encouragement, or a special memory. The story of a trip that you took at one time or another. And even in our culture, there are stories that come around and around and around again. I mean, how many times have we seen the archetypical stories of the Western, For that matter, how many Batman and Spider-Man have we met at this point, right? And yet there are reboots of those stories all the time. And it's because those characters and those conflicts and those issues are interesting to us because they're a part of our own lives. Because there's something that we latch on to in that. But there's also a way in which stories as they cycle, and that's in fact the name of this series that we are in, The Judges Cycle... As they spin around and around again, well, I don't know, maybe it's like clothes in the washing machine. Something's happening transformative in that. With every revolution, there's also a transformation, another iteration. Things become more meaningful as we come back to them and we look through them again and again. This book, not just the book of Judges, But this wonderful library of God's word, the whole thing is a cycle. And in fact, as you and I read through it, we can, if we are looking closely, if we are listening carefully, if we are prayerfully and spiritually reading, if we're part of a community committed to that, if we're part of a place of teaching where the point of the teaching is that the cycle of God's word would cycle richly and deeply into our lives, then what we will find is we are in here. These stories are our stories. And we can come back to them again and again. And when we do, we are enriched. Gideon is one of those guys for me. I have found that somehow the story of Gideon is a story that God keeps cycling back through my life. Not just in my regular reading of the word. But I have looked back on my own ministry and realized that it seems that somehow at key moments in God's development of me for his purposes, he has used the story of Gideon to teach me things, even things that I've already learned before, but to teach them to me in a new way, in the new day that I've arrived at in that circle of my life, that cycle. Now, why do I share this with you? Because I'm uh, such an... Egotist that I just think my life is important enough to, to, to preach about here from the pulpit. No, because what I have learned, and I've mentioned it before, is the more specific you are to your own individual experience, the more universal it is. And that's because we are all much more alike than we are different. It's because each one of us, though we are often feeling like we're living in isolation, we're spinning in the same cycle. We're all... Rotating on this same swiftly tilting planet, to borrow a phrase from Madeline Langle. we are all part of this human race. And the things that you experience, even though they are unique and individual to you, they're not isolated to you. They are the things that others experience as well. I remember probably, well, it's over 20 years ago now, I was part of a a Bible study group. It was really a prayer meeting. It it was like a home church, really, even though I was part of a larger church as well. Every week we met in the home of a woman in Simi Valley and we would pray together and there would be uh, sharing of the Word. But it was a very profoundly charismatic gathering. Now, I hope that doesn't turn somebody off. You ought to know that charismata is simply the grace things of God. And so what I'm saying is the grace of God And the full activity of his Holy Spirit, which is really on virtually every page of this word, was occurring every night that we would gather. The Lord would speak, not in ways that were in any way in violation of his word, but in consistency with his word, often in direct quotation of his word, but also in direct application to the lives of the people that were there. And that was exciting. You could sense the presence of the Lord as we praised and worshipped him together. You could see the impact of the Lord. People got healed. People got delivered. I got delivered. Let me tell you the one reason why I know the devil exists is because I've been under his thumb. I've had his hooks in me in ways that often I didn't even realize I was inviting that kind of influence into my life until I got to a place where the word of the Lord was being taught with so much power and potency and so much of the spirit, that the spirit began to shine a light on things in me that weren't easy to see, but it was important that I would see them because what the Lord wanted to say to me is, I set you free. I give you strength to overcome, to be delivered out of that. So that was happening in that group. Now, at that time, I wasn't even yet involved in seminary training. I was not on the pathway to be a pastor. It was not part of my uh, intention. It wasn't part of my goal. But someone in the group who was a leader in the group said, I think you should share a teaching with us. And I felt incredibly intimidated by that, even though it's not something I hadn't done before. I had done that before in the church that I grew up in because I was always involved in public speaking, and it was something that I got invited to do, and the Lord had a purpose in that. But more to the point, in this time of my life, I felt like with everything that I'm learning in this, in this incredible group, this Bible study prayer group, I don't think I've got anything to add. What do I know? I, I'm, I'm just here to soak up and absorb. But you're never just there to soak up and absorb. That's a part of it, for sure. But whatever you're soaking up and absorbing, guess what? God wants you also to be releasing. You aren't meant to be just a sponge. You're meant to be a fountain, a pipeline of life. What God does in you, he does for a purpose that it would flow through you to others. And sometimes that means that God calls us to do things that we don't feel ready to do. Has God ever called you to do something you didn't feel ready to do? Come on and wave your hand if that's true of you. It's encouraging to know sometimes that, yeah, we all experience that. In fact, if God has never called you to do something that you're afraid to do, you're not listening closely enough to God. Because God always calls us to do that. Not in every moment. But for sure, if you're following Christ, there are going to be times where Christ calls you to do something that is beyond your ability. And it's because he wants you to learn about his, about how his strength is made perfect in your weakness. Now, I don't even remember exactly how it is that I arrived at this, but somehow it was Gideon that I taught on. And so every time that I think about teaching on Gideon, I think back to that moment. If only because I realize now something I couldn't see then, which is that God was wanting me to see myself as a Gideon. That there were so many ways in which Gideon's insecurities and uncertainties and and frankly his cowardice were relatable to me. And yet at the same time, we don't remember Gideon for those things. What we remember Gideon for is what God called him. And God called him a mighty man of valor. Judges 6, 7, and 8 are dedicated to Gideon. He's one of the major judges. Major because he gets all of this content. It doesn't mean that other judges weren't important. In fact, we've talked about our footnote friend recently. All the judges were important to the people at that time that they were serving. But... Gideon gives us a lot of opportunity to learn about how God deals with us when we don't feel that we are ready to be used by God. In fact, we may not even be confident that God is really out there or that God really cares. But Gideon teaches us, the Lord teaches us through Gideon, that there is courage that comes simply from hearing the call of God. I mentioned that Gideon has struggles, and we'll see as we move through his stories over the coming weeks, because we're just going to begin with Gideon today, and we're going to move through these chapters together successively, that Gideon frequently comes back to a place of saying, I'm not sure that this is really what you've called me to do, Lord. Or how can you prove to me that this is really what you want? Or can you give me confirmation? Well, doesn't that just make you feel a little bit good That there are people that God calls great, that God says are valiant, courageous warriors who in the midst of their season and their cycle were saying, I'm not sure. And can you make it clearer? Well, I feel that way. And I imagine that you do too, at least at various times. It's all the more remarkable that the very first greeting that the angel of the Lord makes to Gideon is this statement, calling him a valiant warrior a mighty man of valor, and yet he makes that statement to Gideon while Gideon is essentially hiding out, hunkered down in a kind of cave, doing his work in a way in which he's trying to hide from the enemy. He's actively invoking cowardice. He's demonstrating cowardice, and God comes to him and says, you are courageous. But remember that when God is saying something, God's not simply observing. He's declaring He's creating that courage as he says it. And it's not just Gideon that God is talking to. Christ Jesus wants to talk to you today. He wants to say to you, Hello, I'm here, you courageous person of faith. And it's not because he's coming to applaud you and worship you, but because he's inviting you to applaud and worship him. And in hearing what he has to say to you, It becomes true. You know why? Because it's received by faith. That's the only way it can be received. That's the only thing that can profit. Faith. And faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? The word of God. How glad we are that God comes to us. Even when we're hunkered down and hiding. In the place where we feel defeated and devastated and doubtful. And he says to us, faith. Hope. Love. His love and these things, they remain. Now Gideon's story, as I mentioned, occurs over three uh, chapters, but we're really going to deal with it over four sections, four weeks, but we're going to take a little break in there. So it's four messages over five weeks in which we will be studying the mighty man of valor. Today we're going to deal with Gideon's call, and it's the first half of Judges chapter 6. Next week we're going to look at Gideon's confusion a famous episode in which Gideon puts out a fleece. We'll talk about fleeces and faith and finding the will of God next week when we deal with the last half of Judges 6 and Gideon's confusion. Gideon is perhaps most famous for his conquest. A remarkable victory, which by the way is full of a variety of symbols that give the, the, uh, the connection to the famous Gideon's group, the Bible placing group. And uh, you've probably many times been in a hotel where you've opened up a Bible and seen that it was placed by the Gideons. And you've probably seen there a jar and a flame. It comes from Gideon's conquest and the story of victory in Judges 7. Gideon's life, though, is a kind of up and down cycle itself. Even like the book of Judges, even like your life and mine. There's ups and downs. There's faith and there's failures. And it's interesting to look at Gideon's conclusion. Because while Gideon is a great man of faith... We also still see the judge's cycle permeating through his life and ultimately through his descendants. His offspring don't follow in the pattern that Gideon himself had set. And even Gideon himself, despite his faith in the Lord, struggles with ways in which he fails. And yet, I believe the Lord shares that with us in part so that we could learn from that lesson, but so that we could also realize that we also have ongoing cycles of struggle. And yet Christ Jesus is there with us to show us a way into faith and victory. And it always comes from his call, from who he sees us to be and not just how we see ourselves. That's a big part of Gideon's initial call to courage. And I say it's a call to courage in Christ. Why do I say that? Well, we're seeing our friend the angel of the Lord again here in Judges chapter 6. Do you remember him from Judges chapter 2? The angel of the Lord that came to the nation... ...and said, you were supposed to have faith in me, but you have doubted me and fallen away. There's a little prelude that we'll look at in just a moment in the first 10 verses of Judges 6... ...in which there's a prophet speaking, but the words of that prophet essentially echo the message of the angel of the Lord. Now, you'll remember the angel of the Lord also, the the angel of Yahweh, the one who receives worship like no other angel does. The one who doesn't just speak for God, but as God... You'll remember him from the times we saw him manifest in Joshua 5, the commander of the Lord's armies of heaven. Or from Exodus 3, the angel of the Lord that was in the burning bush in which Moses heard the call to courage. Moses who also said, who am I and I'm not able and I'm not worthy. And it isn't about our worthiness, but it's about the Lord's. The angel of the Lord is the manifestation of the Lord. No one has ever seen God at any time except that Christ Jesus, the Son, has revealed the Father. Jesus said, when you look at me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Jesus is God, but He appears and is a man. And even before He was born in Bethlehem, even here, thousand and plus years before that time, there are pre-incarnate Christophanes, So, I suggest to you that the angel of the Lord that Gideon meets when he is threshing wheat in a wine press in Judges chapter 6 is none other than Jesus himself. And that means that the very person who makes such a prominent presence in this story is the divine person who is speaking to you and I today as well. To us personally. So, when we hear how Jesus speaks to Gideon... Let's hear how he's speaking to us today and let it rouse faith in our hearts. Because in the same way that God moved Gideon past his fears and his failures and his doubts and into the place of peace where God is, God wants to take that place of peace and put it in you. My peace, Jesus said, I give to you. Not like the world gives. Because no one can take this peace away. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding and it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, according to Philippians 4. That's what the invitation of the Lord, the call of the Lord is to you and I today. It doesn't mean that you never have fear. It doesn't mean that you never have doubts. It means that by hearing what God says to you through his word and by his spirit, you can receive faith that is greater than your fears and that can reverse your doubts and produce God's victories. So we're looking at Gideon's call, and that means that it makes pretty good sense to consider, well, what is Gideon called? You know, it was very clear, and I often talk about this, I always talk about it at baby dedications, because that's a naming time, that in the ancient world, they really understood that people's names related to their calling. Amen. In fact, that's why we say, what are you called? You know, In French, it's, and that's a, literally a way to ask people what their names are. What are you called? And so when we think about what, Someone is called by name. In the Hebraic sense, you're also talking about how they are called or to what they are called. You know, not only what is your name, but what is your purpose? So Gideon's name becomes important in that sense. And his name, Gidon in Hebrew, means cutter or hewer. In other words, it would be utilized for someone like a woodsman or a stone cutter. Someone whose occupation was to perform skilled cutting work uh, of heavy uh, materials. It has a root, gada, which means to cut down or to chop apart. Now, there's a principle in the Torah, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, uh, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible particularly, that when you find a Hebrew root term or a Hebrew word used there for the first time that it has some symbolic significance as well. It's a matter of interpretation, but it's one that I have found very useful. If you want to see what a word means in God's estimation, it's often good to look at that Hebrew word and see where does it show up first in God's word. And in this case, it shows up in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7.5 and 12.3 are the first two uses of Gadah, the root of Gideon's name. The first two uses of this verb meaning to cut. And in both of those passages, it's referring to cutting down idols. God is talking to the people of Israel before they go into the promised land. Now, I'm going to put on my professor cap here, metaphorically, not literally. I don't actually have a professor cap. Maybe it'd be cool if I got one. I'm not going to. It'd be like Michael Scott, world's best boss cup. I could get world best professor and put my hat on. I'd be about as ridiculous as Michael Scott if I did that, but... All the same. I want to take you in a little teaching mode here. Do you remember that the book of Judges, along with the book of Joshua and others that follow it, we've described as being part of the Deuteronomic history? In other words, the principles and values of Moses' summarizing sermon to that generation when they were in the wilderness that forms the book of Deuteronomy carries through what follows. Well, who cares? Why does that matter? Because the point is that it's not just Moses' sermon, it's God's word. In fact, that's the idea of a sermon. That's the idea of this sermon. That you and I are looking back at what God has done, but carrying it through like a through line into where does it apply today? And so the Deuteronomic values that God puts forward at that time are basically the judge's cycle. I'm your God. I delivered you out of Egypt, the Lord says. And I will deliver you again. But when you go into the land that I am taking you into, or if you and I want to apply it more metaphorically, when you go into the places that I lead you, the cycles of your life, when you go into your workplace or to your marriage or into parenting, when you go into your your high school or your university, when you enter into whatever phase of life it is that God has led you into at this point, beware. Because you're going to be surrounded by people who are unaware of God, or unconcerned with God, or interested in other gods and other ways. And the idolatry of all of that influence could imprint upon you. And what God says is, I won't be happy if that happens, not just because he's a jealous God who wants to stamp his feet, but because he's got a purpose for you and I. And he doesn't want to see that purpose perverted by falsehood and lies, because he cares about truth. Because he cares about you. And so what God says is, don't mix in with that. Doesn't mean have no association with people around you. It's saying, don't allow those values to become yours. And don't intermingle with that kind of belief. Because if you do, then you will suffer. But instead, cut that out of your life. And pull those things down. And raise up an altar to the Lord instead. So in fact, what we see is that Gideon's name refers to the judge's cycle. It refers to coming against idolatry. The people have their faith in the Lord, but as they get more comfortable, they give themselves over to the ways of the idolatry around them until the people around them dominate them. They suffer and call out to God, and God raises up one who will cut down the idols, and that's who Gideon is. We'll see it more next week. But I want to take this opportunity to just refresh in our minds What we looked at a couple of weeks ago, which is, why is it that idolatry is so interesting to them and to us? I know we're talking about Iron Age Israel, you know, 3,000 plus years ago. But this is also our story today. There is the influence of those around us that calls us to compromise according to the cultural peer pressure of our times the ideas and values that the world raises up that are inconsistent with the word of God. And if we give in to that influence, we become dominated by it and enslaved by the falsehood of popular fashion. Maybe we're even interested in exploring other things alternative to God. And we have apathy towards Christianity in our culture today because it's sort of like been there, done that. And so people easily turn away from God's word and God's ways, and they're very curious and even um, actively adamant about investigating other kinds of beliefs. But in fact, that interest can lead you into a place of enslavement. There's also the appeal to indulge your carnality, your flesh, the perversity, the greed, the selfishness that's common to all of us, and the desire maybe most of all to control Why would I want to give myself over to a God to whom I have to answer and who has more power? Why not instead give myself over to an idol that I've made myself? That way I can be the God. But again, the problem with that kind of indulgence is you are neither strong enough to overcome the enemy nor wise enough to know the difference. And only God can deliver us from that kind of bondage. Finally, there's insolence. A pride that says, well, I don't need that. I'm I'm going to go my own way. But that pride produces a fall, a fall into spiritual bondage and even toxic traditions. And we'll see a little bit of that in Gideon's story. In fact, we'll see quite a bit of it. Gideon is a man who has raised up an environment in which Yahweh, the God of Israel, is worshipped and praised. But there's all kinds of other idols that his own father worships. And has ensconced in their society. And Gideon is going to struggle with that his whole life. And even his kids are going to go back into it. There are traditions that have intermingled with the Christian culture. But they are nothing of Christ. And they can move from generation to generation to generation. Sometimes what God is going to call you to do is what he called Gideon to do. Come and cut that down. Be the one who makes a break in your family line from those toxic traditions that may be admired in the world but are nothing of Christ. These are all ways in which idolatry can be a snare to us as well. But they are also all ways in which the word of the Lord comes to cut those chains and to bring us freedom. Here you can see that this is the specific passage I mentioned, Deuteronomy 7.5, where we are told... This is how they're supposed to deal with the idols that get raised up in their land. Break down those altars, dash in pieces those pillars, and chop down Gadah, Gideon, that ashram, a wooden goddess. When Gideon is found by the Lord, he's underneath a terebinth tree. It's a tree that was considered holy and sacred in the ancient world, as trees often were, and that's a larger story But it it seems to be that there's a kind of analogy being drawn, which is that there are all of these trees of idolatry that have grown up around Gideon. And Gideon is being called to chop them down and instead to raise up the standard of the Lord. Look here, by the way, at the end of this passage, Deuteronomy 7, 6. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. Now this is a statement coming to people whom God is saying you're going to give in to idolatry. So it's just like God coming to someone hiding in a, in, a, in a hidden space and saying, you are courageous. Here is God coming to idolaters and saying, you are holy. Not because God is dumb, not because he's trying to butter us up, but because he's speaking creatively about what they are meant to be. Amen. And so he says it to you today. You're holy. Amen. You say, I'm not worthy of that. Of course you're not. Neither am I. But it's his word, his power that makes it true. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. But thousands of years later, or at least many hundreds of years later, the Apostle Paul would say, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's almost certain that Paul specifically has Gideon in mind here for what will happen in chapter 7. Gideon's conquest. We'll come back to that in future weeks. First, let's take a look at this quick prelude. I'm not going to read through it with you. You can look at it directly on your own. But you see the judges' cycle at work here once again in the first 10 verses of the chapter. Israel does what was evil. Now, remember last week we talked about Deborah and Barak and there was liberation and deliverance. But the cycle spins around again. And once again, the people give themselves over to idolatry. And because of that, the Lord gives them over into the hands of the Midianites. Now, there's a variety of groups that are involved here. The Midianites are foregrounded. They're probably dominant in the the oppression that uh, Israel experiences. But there's a variety of people from the east, as they are called, that come into Israel and start raiding Israel successively. These are people who are coming from the, uh, the eastern shore of the Sinai Peninsula, And they're coming up into southern Israel and they're raiding all the way to the Gaza Strip, which means all the way to the western Mediterranean coast. And when they do that, they take the grain that has been stored. They take whatever provisions Israel has stored by force because they are militarily stronger stronger, and because they've bonded together various different Amalekites and Midianites and so forth. And in this this kind of uh, guerrilla warfare, they're able to to loot the land, even livestock are stolen, to the point where the Israelites are dying because they don't have enough food to sustain, because everything that they store up gets stolen away from them. And because of this, Israel is brought low and cries out to God for help. This is when the Lord sends a prophet who basically repeats what the angel of the Lord said in Judges 2, which is, I delivered you before, and I told you to be faithful to me. And I told you that you shouldn't fear these other gods and these other peoples, but you have not obeyed my voice. Sometimes we're afraid to listen to the Lord because we're afraid of what he has to say. But sometimes it's necessary to hear the rebuke of the Lord in order to receive his encouragement. If the problem in our lives is that we are turning away from God, there's no way to turn to God unless we are ready to hear him say, you've gone the wrong way. But if you're afraid to hear him say that, why aren't you afraid of what it results in? More fearful even than hearing that you've gone the wrong way is reaping the reward of that, or rather to say, reaping that bitter harvest. So when God says to you, you've disobeyed, it's not because he wants to grind you into the ground, it's because he wants to lift you up and free you from what you've allowed to dominate you. Now Gideon has a hard time believing that God could say something to him that would involve him being courageous and victorious, and that's because, just like you and me, Gideon has an image of himself. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Can I let you in on a secret? You see yourself in a way that no one else sees you. You've never seen yourself the way other people look at you. First of all, you are way more concerned with how you look than anyone else is. Now, there may be exceptions to that, but chances are you think things about your nose or your chin or wrinkles or your skin or your complexion or your hair that other people never even think about. I remember one time I was getting ready to go out with some friends when I was in my 20s. And I'm an exceedingly vain person, which is terrible burdens given the way that I look. You know, it's terrible to be vain and not have anything to have vanity about. It's it's a bad combination. So I'm trying to get my hair right, and I was having a bad hair day. I know that's a horrible cliche, but it was true. And I was saying to my friend, it just looks terrible. And they said to me, your hair always looks exactly the same. All of my bad hair days, to them, were no worse nor no better than my good hair days. I didn't know if I was relieved or horrified. But I, what I realized was I was looking at my hair a lot more closely than anyone else was. Ever hear your voice recorded? I don't like to hear my voice. It makes it hard when I see recordings of myself. I don't. But you hear your voice differently than anyone else does. You think about what you say and what you do in ways that nobody else does you may be your own worst critic. Except that there is a worse critic than you who often hides behind you and uses you like an idol to manipulate you with a voice that is constantly tearing you down because you believe what the enemy says about you and you're not even listening to God. So it's time to silence the voice of the enemy and listen to the voice of the Lord. Now, what Gideon sees when he looks at himself is all factual. He says, I'm the youngest person in my household. It's true. By the way, so am I. I know what that feels like. You're always younger. You're always lesser. My, my brothers and I now are you know, old men, but I still, I guess it's nice to feel young around them, but it's a diminishing kind of experience when you're the youngest in your household, or it can be. Not only that, but his family is the least in his tribe. And his tribe is the least in the nation, by his view. And the nation, he says, has been forsaken by their God. And spiritually, he's disconnected from everything that happened in the past. You used to do these things, God. You used to do miracles. But that doesn't happen anymore. People used to hear your voice. People used to have faith. But it's not like Bible times anymore. Even Gideon has Bible times There's scripture that proceeds Gideon. And Gideon says, back in those days, you did stuff like that with Abraham and Moses, but not today. Maybe even in the Joshua generation, when you brought the walls of Jericho down. But today, we are under the foot of the Midianites. But here's how Jesus sees Gideon. First of all, he's called Whereas Gideon sees himself as least and cowardly, Jesus says, well met, you mighty man of valor. He's chosen. He says, I've chosen you. And don't you know that I'm going to go with you and through you, just like one man, I will deliver the whole nation because you are going to be anointed by the Holy Spirit. The treasure of God wants to dwell within you. The fire of God Burning within you. Yes, you're a clay vessel. We are all jars of clay with feet of clay, but within our weakness, God's strength is revealed and made perfect. God sees us right where we are. You may be hunkered down today in the place where you're not trying to be victorious, you're just trying to survive. You may be in the place where you would rather that God didn't see you and nobody else either because you don't feel worthy of anyone's sight, but God sees you and he calls you. And he calls you to faith, to believe that he has a purpose for you that involves you being conformed to the likeness of Christ and being filled with the spirit of Christ so that you can be equipped to be more than a conqueror through him who has loved us. This is how Gideon ultimately comes to build a place called the Lord is peace, an altar. Gideon has heard his name through the voice of God. And it's that that enables Gideon to speak the name of God and to declare not only what God is called, but what God is. In other words... When we really hear from God, we'll start to know who we really are and we'll be able to worship in a way that is powerful and filled with peace and purpose and that will prevail. Let me say a few structural things. I'm not going to have time to read all of the chapter with you. I hope that this week you'll come back and read through it. But I want to call out a few points. There's three places in this one place, a kind of Trinitarian progression through the remainder of this first half Of Judges 6 verses 11 through 24 the hiding place that's where the Lord the angel of the Lord first comes to Gideon but that very hiding place I call it hiding because Gideon is down beneath the surface of the ground threshing wheat in a wine press not a place that is made for the threshing of wheat he's doing it because he doesn't want the Midianites to find him because they're going to come and steal what he's got he's afraid of losing the little bit they still have left And so he's doing it underground, undercover. And that's the very place where suddenly over his shoulder he sees there's a man sitting there watching him, speaking to him, saying, Hello, courageous one. And it's because Gideon is willing to listen that the hiding place becomes the hearing place. And it's because the Lord is present and already was present there that Gideon realizes that the hearing place is the holy place the first thing to realize is that god sees us where we are and all of us are hunkered down in places of fear frustration maybe even failure and that's the very place where god wants to speak into us faith gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the midianites this is an ancient wine press You can see that it's dug down into the ground so that it can hold grapes as they're being trod, they're being stepped on with feet. And then you see that's a kind of funneling, a cycle there too, where the juice of the grapes can be collected. Now, the benefit of this wine press is that it allows Gideon to get down below the ground because it's probably embedded in the ground. Or if it's elevated over the ground, at least he can't be seen. So he's hunkered down in this. And it's under a tree. And this tree is a very low-hanging, broad kind of bush of a tree, the terabith. Sometimes you'll see it translated as oak. It's not literally an oak. But it is like that in the sense that it creates this canopy of shade. It's a hiding place. It's not what it was intended for, but it's how he's using it. And this is when you and I can relate to something of, I'm not trying to be victorious. I'm not trying to overcome. I'm just trying to survive. I've been in that place myself the last few weeks. I'm just trying to get through this. Trying to hold on to whatever little I can. Trying to control whatever little bit I can. Looking constantly. Is there something coming down the pike that's going to ruin this? That's going to steal this? How about looking for the Lord who wants to say, I've got something better for you to believe. But he calls us to face our fear. Even as he speaks this word that says, you are a mighty man of battle, he is turning Gideon towards the truth. You can't hide out in this cave forever. I've called you onto the battlefield. That's scary. But it's also purposeful. Because the promise of the Lord is, I will give you the victory, but not here in the cave out there on the battlefield but there's some things that need to be dealt with first and one of them is that Gideon has got doubts even when he's encountering this man that he seems to understand I'm not sure who this guy is he looks like a man but he's not an ordinary man and he's saying things that sound pretty holy but also Gideon is thinking how can these things really be true because if what you say is true and the Lord is with us then why has he abandoned us? Maybe you have felt this way. If God is so good and God loves me so much and Jesus came to save me, why does he keep allowing me to fall into these ruts and to face all of these problems and to experience all of this hardship? If God is really for me and not against me, then why doesn't he come in and do something? And why does it keep going this way? Where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Where are all those miracles in here in my life today? If Jesus healed people of sickness then, how come he didn't heal my mother or my father or me? Why does he allow me to deal with diabetes or arthritis or why do I have this cancer diagnosis? Or maybe it's something simpler than that, asthma or or some other issue that you deal with that is dealable, manageable. But also, if God wants me to be whole, why this? If God wants to help, why all the hardship? Now the Lord has forsaken us, Gideon says. But the Lord is the one who's right there with him. Sometimes you and I are saying, God, you've left me. But if that's the case, who are you talking to? You might feel like, well, I'm not talking to anyone. You are. He's there. He hears. But do you hear him? Because what he says is, go in this might of yours. What is this might of his? It's the might of God. Go in this word. Go in faith and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? What God is saying is, my friend, I'm here right now. I'm speaking to you right now. And I'm the one that is calling you and equipping you. Then then Gideon starts to get real. How can I do it? All of a sudden it's, I don't want to be the one bearing that responsibility. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. But God says, that doesn't matter. I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm the one that will make you able. You have the favor of Christ. You've been bought with a price. You belong to him. He's got a purpose for you. But it has to be all or nothing. Either you're gonna believe in your doubts or you're gonna double down on faith. Now he's speaking the faith to you, but you can still hold on to your doubts. Or you could be like Gideon. I say to you that the first idols that Gideon cut down were the idols of his own doubt, the idols of his own fear, his own trust in his estimation of himself. The first thing that had to be cut down and cut out was his doubt and fear so that he could put his trust and faith in the Lord. And the way that he did that was to show that he was willing to believe that God might very well be speaking to him. And he wanted to put his money where his faith was. He wanted to make a sacrifice. So Gideon says, if this is true, if I've really found favor in your eyes, you see that Gideon has realized, I'm not just talking to a man, I'm talking with God. And he's saying, if this is really what you're saying to me, then don't leave me. Stay here and let me give you something that shows I believe in you. Let me give you something that costs something. And let me tell you something, it costs a lot. Now, by the way, this is what the Lord says, I will stay. It's the Lord saying, I'm not going to forsake you. You go ahead and take the steps that I'm calling you to take. I'm right here. So Gideon goes into his house. He gets a young goat. He gets unleavened cakes. He brings an afa of flour. That's about 36 pounds or three-fifths of a bushel. Let me ask you something. How long do you think it takes to produce 36 pounds of flour if the way you're getting that flour is, first of all, by hand threshing that wheat in a wine press? That's a lot of flour. That's a lot of resource, especially in the days when everything that everybody has is being raided. Every cellar is being emptied out by the enemies of the people of the Lord. And Gideon is saying, I'm willing to give you everything I've got. That's what giving to the, to the church is about. That's what giving your money is. You think, why does God need my money? He doesn't. You only have money because he's allowed you to have it. What he's asking for is your faith. But money is a way to show God that you trust in him. Time is a way to show God that you believe in him. Focus is a way to show God that you want to worship him. And God says, I will receive that. There's a whole metaphor that could be seen here about the flesh of Gideon being put on the altar. Because the goat and the bread, it's all a way of referring to Gideon giving himself to God. And when he does, the Lord, in the presence of that angel, very Christ Jesus himself, I suggest reaches out the tip of his staff to where these items have been offered on the rock and fire flames up from the rock, a miracle, a miracle like from Bible times, a miraculous experience in which that fire consumes the meat, the flesh, the bread, like the fire of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the Lord manifests himself plainly and clearly and miraculously to Gideon, and the angel disappears. But it's not that Christ has gone away. It's that Gideon is now going to see by faith. You say, I want to see miracles in my life. The greatest miracle has already been performed. It was Christ himself putting himself on the cross for you and I. The gift of the Holy Spirit has already been given to the people of God and can be yours as you believe in the word of the Lord and allow the spirit of the Lord to dwell richly within you. And let me tell you something. You will see miracles. You will see healings. You will experience miraculous manifestations of God. But it isn't about chasing after those things. Those things can become idols too. It is about desiring the presence of the Lord. And in His presence... There is purity and there is power. And indeed, there is revelation. Gideon suddenly, with the spirit of repentance, says, Oh my God, I've seen you face to face. I've seen the angel of Yahweh face to face. I'm going to die. Not because he thinks God is wicked, but because he realizes he is. But also because he realizes that God is so holy that you can't look upon the Lord and live unless you have the grace of God. And God gives it to him by speaking it. He says to him exactly the words that Jesus said to his own disciples when he was resurrected Peace be with you. My peace I give to you. Don't be afraid. Even if you die, yet shall you live. You're not going to die, Gideon. You're going to live and be victorious and Gideon believes it and builds an altar there so that it can never be forgotten so that he is invested in it so that it becomes the place name of that place just like the altar that Abraham his forebearer built that said Jehovah Jireh Yahweh will provide here he builds an altar that says Jehovah Shalom Yahweh is peace and the Lord says to you today peace be with you You belong to me and I am giving my peace to you. Will you believe it? Are you willing to sacrifice those other things that you rely upon in order to experience the presence of the Lord in your life today? That altar remained so that even in the ancient days when the book of Judges was recorded, we are told it still stands there in Ophrah today. The Lord is peace. It's time to hold on, not just to hope, but to faith in the Lord. And when you do, the fire of God will fill your life with his light and his holy presence. The author of Hebrews said that Gideon was one who conquered kingdoms by faith who was made strong, not out of his own strength, but like the left-handed lions that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, like the mother in Israel that we saw last week, like Barak, a man also, unsure if he had the qualities to conquer, but who believed in the Lord. These were all made strong out of weakness and made mighty by the presence of the Spirit of the Lord. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So what shall God say about us? How does he see you today? Are you hiding from him today? Friends, I want to conclude with these questions. Where are you hunkered down just trying to survive? Where have you given up believing that there could be victory and you're simply satisfied trying not to lose anymore? The Lord wants to say to you, I'm right here over your shoulder watching you. And I say to you, you were made for more than this. You were made to thrive. You were made to overcome, but it isn't going to be found in the hiding place. It's got to be by hearing me and what I say to you. It's got to be found in my word. It's got to be found in my spirit. It's got to be received in your heart. What does God call us to offer up to him today? What is it that you could say to him if you're willing to recognize that he is with you right now? And friend, he is with us right now. He is here in this place. The Lord's peace is in this place. But the Lord's call is here too. And he's saying, I want to call you to courage. What is it of fear or doubt that you need to give up to God? What is it of control of your own will of your own resource that God is calling you to offer as a sacrifice today so that when you place it on the stone of his altar, he could fill you with the fire of his spirit. There are real things that God wants to do through you that will change the land, that will light up the world, that will bring victory over the darkness. You're called, hear, believe, and receive. Lord, we ask that you would help us to hear the names that you speak over us today. The promises that you declare upon us today. The challenges that you issue to us today. Show us the battlefields to which we are called, Lord. We know that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our place is not to try and beat people into submission to you, or certainly not into our will, but show us the spiritual battlefields, Lord, where the idols of the enemy have been raised up in our own eyes, in our own world, and you would have us to be Gideons, coming and cutting them down and casting down those strongholds that that. Proudly try to rise up against you in your ways. Help us, Lord, to be people of faith who see ourselves through your eyes and believe what your word says and trust in you. The reality is, Lord, we are afraid. We have failed and we do have doubts. So fill us with faith today and hope today and love today. Your faith, your hope your love, your fire, your light, your peace. I don't often do this, but I feel prompted to pray in the Spirit, the spiritual language, the gift of tongues, which is described in the book of Acts and throughout many places in Scripture, and allow the Spirit to speak to us in a direct way today. Will you simply pray? And allow the Spirit to speak. Roto siendiriano, tekle afan pramahashi kiri leno numputse. Rati kekinini bamba mbabasotorbo hatum. Rotoha miyakeyata hamalahatukum kumbabohosikin. Ruti estem, ruti estem, ruti estem. Efan proku kushemehaton balahati ki. Ekwana mahashi mbere efan even as these words are spoken even as this prayer in the spirit is prayed some would say is that of the lord and can i really believe that the things that god has done in the past are done again this is not merely explanation but this is the translation of the prophecy i the lord speak and i am speaking to you even in this wicked world which has fallen into darkness and will fall further still I am calling you to look to me. When every light is extinguished, my fire will still burn. And every tree and vain pillar and tall tower that has been raised up in the vanity and perversity of this world will be brought low. But my people, who are called by my name, do not relish destruction but believe for revelation and trust in a new creation. You shall be rooted in my word. Yes, rooted in my word. Yes, rooted in my word. If you will believe in me, I will come and abide in you. You will be mine and I will be yours and no one and nothing can ever take you from my hand. Now, ready yourself for hard days are ahead. And if you think you are weary now, you will not be able to sustain in what is to come. So trust in me. No one who places their trust in me will be disappointed. I am peace. My peace I give to you. You belong to me. I will make you victorious in my name. Lord, we believe you and we receive that faith and ask you to keep us strong through whatever challenges of life come to each one of us and to help us, Lord, to be a light in this world with a winsome message of hope, the good news that your love and grace and forgiveness are available to all and that in Christ Jesus, there is life everlasting. May that hope and that confidence reach every heart, every set of ears, every soul within the sound of my voice today and whenever these words are proclaimed to your glory and grace, Lord God. Amen and amen.